Well, thank you, Lewis, for, for joining me today. Very excited to chat about everything you're a part of and what you've done so far. And specifically, the fashion industry is a big one. Uh, it's got a, a lot of issues, a lot of pros and cons, like every industry does. But the Fashion Climate Fund that the Apparel Impact Institute is, is putting together and everything the organization is doing within the sector is interesting. But before we kind of get into everything that that is now, which you're up to now, talk a little bit about your journey. Sure. You know, before, before AII and the climate fund like what was your path thanks grant well first of all i just want to say i'm honored that you uh invited me to be a part of this conversation so thank you for that and you know the the whole concept of disruption and disrupting for good reminds me a little bit of some of the, the things i think about of like you know a lot of what we're doing is kind of coming up with real strategies to change and disrupt systems but we're doing it you know in sort of a strategic way that that needs to like embrace a lot of the strategies that others have used for for not necessarily always good, you know, good intent, like warfare, sure, you know, sure. but it's like, Hey, this is like battle. We're going to battle and we're going to, and we're going to do it for good. Right. So, so I love that, that concept of disruption for good. I've been with the apparel impact Institute since we launched, which was coming up on five years ago. And, and I was asked to, um, to, consider coming over and building this this entity, which we'll talk about, this new organization that would help the industry scale their their solutions, you know, really get programs and, and ventures and concepts that are solving for some of these big issues we're trying to grapple with in the sector uh, to get this to scale. And, um, and prior to that, I was running an organization called the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute, which was focused on design and circularity and manufacturing, looking at products across all different sectors around designing for continuous material flow and material reuse. This whole concept of the circular economy and cradle to cradle was a leading design principle, set of principles and methodologies that I had grown to know about through my work in the carpet industry. So that was what I was doing before that was huh. been working in the carpet industry around their circularity and product formulation and take back programs hmm. and all that. I was the head of sustainable strategies for the commercial sector of Mohawk industries um, based in North Georgia, just outside Atlanta. And so that's kind of how I got into the sustainability work. But I think that, you know, for me, and we can dive into more of this, but I feel like I a couple years ago, maybe two or three years ago, I kind of woke up and went, wow, now I can see that everything that I was attracted to and worked on from the minute I graduated from college uh, to now makes sense. Because I think it was all, it all fits into this puzzle piece that's become this sort of career strategy that's led me to have the skills and the passion and the interest that can do what we're doing now at, at the Apparel Impact Institute. So let's get into that. Yeah. It would exactly is. There's a lot of layers to sure. it. There's a lot of a lot of things going on. So I guess, you know, when people ask, you know, what it is, what is AII? Like, how do you explain it to them? Yeah. You know, there's a couple ways I explain it sometimes because we are a nonprofit. We um, were set up to be an organization that convenes the industry around collective action for pre-competitive activities, I'll call it. Like these are the things that we're not competing on. These are the things that we as an industry have to do together. And a lot of that does impact the way we design and make things, particularly in a sector that doesn't own its own supply chain. We're sharing this supply right. chain. We need to have a baseline and then accelerate from that in terms of what we expect suppliers to be able to do in order to meet the social and environmental goals. So sometimes I describe us as, you know, we're a nonprofit that convenes the industry around, you know, our mission statement, which is to identify fund scale and measure solutions. Um, sometimes I refer to us almost like a foundation 
fashion because now with this fashion climate fund, we're a grant maker too. And so the pro the programs yeah. that we previously were pooling funds from the industry to run now puts us in a position that we can run some programs ourselves and fund those with you know third party partners in countries and regions like our clean by design program, which I'm happy to talk about. Or we are also make grant making, but we're kind of a, we're not a passive grant maker. We have a specific strategy around helping the industry unlock some of those barriers. So when we make grants, it's because we see an opportunity to move something that is already proven to scalability, or we use those grant making dollars to potentially identify and unlock some of the technologies in the innovation gap. And I can talk more about like, well, what's in the innovation gap for, for this sector? Because there's some very specific need to be identified in order to, to solve for some of the big targets like science-based targets, which is this industry's goal to stay under 1.5 degrees Celsius, like all of us are working on globally uh, to stay under temperature rise increase uh, by 2030. You know, we're making some very specific science-based commitments to lowering carbon emissions. You know, I, I struggle with the, the fashion industry because like, I, I love it. I kind of grew up, my mom worked at Saks Fifth Avenue her entire life. Oh, nice. You know, she worked there 30 years. You know, so I, you know, I'd always go there and kind of, you know, meet, say hi or pick her up from work or something like that. Mm -hmm. We'd always talk about stuff and... I was never really into fashion, but I, I, I liked it because she liked it. And so I, you know, I grew, I grew to like some of it, mm -hmm. especially like sneaker culture and, you know, growing up playing basketball, I, I did all that. And then as I, you know, started cause artist and, and started to read more and more, there's the, the positive parts about fashion, but there's also very negative parts, sure. right? Everybody is aware of sort of supply chains and, and sort of maybe, you know, labor issues. And then there's the environmental issues where you know, it's the second leading cause of really pollution in the world behind the oil industry, right? And there's this tough dynamic of how do you keep the industry going? Because it is this sort of every quarter we need to have new stuff, right? You're always making things, making things, making things. Yep. But there's a there's a there's the dilemma there of you know, how do you, you know, scale companies or scale startups in the industry where it's a lot about making products that historically may not have been like good, right? They get thrown away and they end up in landfills and they're it's always about the next buy, the next purchase. So like how are companies thinking about even the, the business model of fashion, right? Having this sort of fall, spring, summer, winter line, right? Like is, I guess, what are the big problems that the industry is talking about? And, and you're in a rare spot, right? Because mm -hmm. you get to talk to every everybody at once, right? And, and they all kind of have the same collective issues. Sure. What do, what, do they, what do they see? I guess, what are they aware of? What do they, what do they understand that they need to change? And, and maybe what are, what are some of the things that you could touch on that come out of those conversations with the collective community. Excellent. Well, you said a lot of great things there, Grant. And I think I, I think I see like three or four questions. So I'm going to, I'm going to back it up to the beginning of what you said, and then I'm going to, and then exactly. I'm going to land, land, land on where you just ended. So let's talk about fashion. Like who cares? Right. You know, I get that a lot, right. especially as we're raising big capital and, and philanthropic and you get a lot about like, ah, fashion, come on. Can't you spend your life career working on something more serious, something more important? And the reality is you, and you laid it 
it out. It's like this is an industry that has its tentacles across every sector from uh, yeah. agriculture to, uh, you know, land use, biodiversity issues to uh, petroleum based, yeah. you know, uh, minerals, leather tanning, cattle, you know, uh, absolutely shipping, transportation, logistics. Yeah, it's farms, it's factories, it's raw materials coming from synthetics. It's, yep. you know, it's forests for man-made cellulose. It's like rayon. I mean, it, it's everywhere and it employs millions and millions of people globally yep. that are part of this fiber and fabric, pun intended, that makes up this whole sector. But when we step back and go, okay, why should I care about fashion? I don't really, I'm not into fashion or I don't really care about fashion or whatever. I like to go back to like, well, what is it really? And it's this sort of basic uh, understanding of this is these textiles and apparels have meaning historically and through time. So like you mentioned sneakers, which is a great example. Like you may not care about like the latest Gucci, you know, suit or jacket or something, but you're, you're, you're digging those shoes that you're going to wear playing basketball. They have a performance and a function need for you. If you're an athlete, they have, and you're kind of into the whole design thing and you, you're, you know, you're a big fan of Michael Jordan. He's put out these airs, you know, like this, this is it, cultural it became art, relevance. Really, right? yeah, it became art. It's art. And that's that's the point. So I like to say fashion is art. So thank you for teeing that up. It is like music. It is like theater. It is like film. It is like painting and other mediums. It is a way in which we tell stories about ourselves. It is how we brand our identities. It is how we talk about and share what's important to us. And if you really dig into it, you know, you can see that because everybody's wearing clothes. We're also passing things down. We're passing down articles of clothing. We're passing down wedding dresses, children's clothes, textiles that were our grandmother's tablecloths and linens, quilts. You know, there are so many levels to understand the relationship that we've had globally to textiles for thousands and thousands of years. And it's interesting. I heard a story, and I need to check out the validity of this. But when I was in India a number of years ago, there was a wonderful woman who was working on natural dyes. And she and her husband had set out to, to really try to tackle the issue of toxic chemistry and dyes and and uh, in the industry. And she was sharing with me that in this particular culture in India, that when a woman was pregnant, they would gift her with a yellow sari. And that the origin story of that, because it was still a tradition in this sense that yellow was representative of the pregnant mother or the nursing mother. Um, but the origin story of it was around the saffron, that they would dye the cloth in and that it had Ayurvedic properties that were beneficial to a woman if she wore this. And potentially it could be in her skin, into her skin through, you know, one of the biggest organs we have on our body is our skin, which is, you know, we'll talk about like the impacts of chemistry and fashion, but that potentially for her pregnancy, for her nursing, that this low levels of saffron seeping into her system was good for her and the baby, you know? So I love thinking about like some of these, you know, origin stories around why things are meaningful and important, but it's also a way in which we brand and communicate, right? What I wear says something about me. What I don't wear says something about me, you know? Um, in the Bay Area, we really don't wear suits and ties to business meetings anymore. And, you know, when I travel internationally, I always have to check and go, okay, where am I going? Is, is the culture still that I need to wear, yeah. you know, business? Business attire, not business casual. You know, in the Bay Area, it's a very much a, you know, I'm wearing sneakers and a Patagonia pullover with a pair of cords or dockers or something, you know, to a business meeting where I'm raising millions of dollars. Like I don't have to put on a tie. And that says something about what Silicon Valley and the Bay Area value. 
terms of culture around. Anyway, we could dive into this whole thing forever. So, but I want to like start with, hey, whether you practice yoga, whether you go camping, whether you are a social person who goes to parties and, you know, loves to wear stuff or you're into the music scene and you want your clothes to be reflective of the type of music and artists you listen to, you're making choices, right? And you're, and you're saying something about who you are based on the things that you're buying and wearing. And we all have that favorite article of clothing, you know, that thing that you're like, oh my God, I love this thing. It has the pockets in the perfect place. And I can't, I wish I could find it, you know, in this other scenario, I wish I could find other things that would like this. And so I think that's important to kind of get to. So then this, the second thing that you sort of brought up was, you know, what are the, the major issues then in the making of this? And again, I like to kind of go back because, because you brought up the topic of sort of the current capitalist model of, you know, produce and increase shareholder value and wealth on a quarterly basis. And that we, that growth is part of the way our economies exist. And, and so I think we have to think about that is also really important. We are employing millions and millions of people globally, as I pointed out, from designers and creatives to people that work in the corporate offices, to all the supply chain workers and factories, the people in the farms, those you know involved with the extruding of raw materials that go into this. You know, there's there's just a, a huge network of people that are employed. And so economic development and livelihood depends on this sector. Now, that doesn't mean we can't disrupt this sector and reskill and train people to take on other jobs and other activities if we shift the balance of, you know, how many people are employed in the fashion industry, which is probably going to happen and going to have to happen, uh, which touch on that too. But I think it's important to say like, hey, this is an important sector that actually creates economic development and livelihood. Now, that being said, there's a real imbalance, you know, where a lot of the wealth is accrued at the top and the factory workers may not be paid a living wage and fair wage. So that's one of the key issues on the social side. Uh, Mm -hmm. Apparel Impact Institute uh, while we have it in our vision statement that social and environmental solutions are part of what we aim to solve for, currently we're not taking on social. But I'll tell you, as we're getting deeper into the climate work, there's a real need for us to look through the lens of climate justice and just energy transitions and the communities in which we're bringing clean technologies and clean energies to industry. So, you know, I kind of say put a pin in that, everyone, because this is we're, we're going to be evolving to either co-finance or co co-fund alongside initiatives that are looking to electrify or bring um, clean technologies and clean electricity and energy to to regions. Um, and that's not just the factories. And so I think we we, we know that that's an evolving, mm-hmm. you know, uh, importance for us. But as you were saying earlier, it's like, you know, the issues are around how we're making stuff, like what impact we're having with the raw materials and the land. Uh, so that imp- impacts biodiversity, land use issues, et cetera. And that obviously impacts climate, water usage. Um, so that's number two, like water. We're having a negative impact on um, scarcity of water and also quality of water. So it's quantity and quality of water impact. That's through chemical use, chemical management, et cetera. We're also CO2 emissions. We're emitting a lot of carbon. Most of that is happening in the production of um, processing and dyeing fabrics and finishing fabrics because that's where we're using on-site boilers that are typically fueled by um, a fossil fuel, coal or natural gas or even biomass, you know. Yeah. So those are big. Those are big issues. And then, and then the other one, I'll pause and let you do some talking. Is on the waste side, and that's <laughs> the whole. We're also based on this whole quarterly consumption model. We're making more and more and more and more, and we don't. Mm-hmm. We have a strategy 
for circularity, but we don't yet have a system implemented to take all this material back and put it into future products. But it's being worked on, sure. you know, and and that includes, you know, as we said in the cradle to cradle world, like there is no away, right? So everything's going to go somewhere. So that also includes plastic yeah. in our oceans. That includes, you know, um, microplastics coming off of, you know, products as well. And so it's not just landfill and, you know, thinking about piles of textiles. It's also how it's impacting our water systems and, and also getting into our, our human ecological, human and environmental health issues. All right. With that, I'll pause and let you do some yeah. <laughs> counterpoint. <laughs> yeah, no, there's so many. No, there's just so, like you said, there, there's just so many different areas that the industry touches on. I think textile innovation is is a really big one that I see that there's a ton of effort going into specifically, you know, startups like creating, you know, mycelium to replace sort of leather. This is really, that's really interesting or, or putting processes in the place where we take waste from the ocean or landfills and actually turn them into some sort of fabric. There's things happening in, in the, the landscape of like startups where they can start foundationally to build these things out to then maybe supply the bigger the bigger fashion companies or or houses with materials that are a little bit more cleaner and have some maybe some biodegradable aspects to it. The one thing you had mentioned earlier about you know maybe not owning the supply chain is that sort of like a conscious choice because when we look at like technology, you are talking about like. Vertical integration, right? That's kind of like what the sweet spot where every everybody kind of wants that. I guess why doesn't industry look at owning the supply chain? Is that because of liability aspects? Because it, let's like look at Vietnam or, or like somewhere where there's a lot of stuff being made, you know, but these buildings are maybe not up to par, they're not up to code, right? We wouldn't allow Americans to work in buildings yeah. like this. But why doesn't why do they not vertically integrate to where you know they can really control the environment that their workers work in? I guess it's technically not their workers; they're probably independent contract. Like there's all these different dynamics that they don't have control over. Yeah. Is that okay because they can keep prices kind of low for for labor and, and maybe fabric? Is that yeah? I guess it's vertical integration and. and potentially owning some of the supply chain where they can make things more efficient too, right? That's that's a big part of it as well. Like, I guess what are conversations around vertical integration and the supply chain part of this? Because that, that's kind of where everything, that, that's the foundation of all it. this. I love it, Grant. Um, yeah, so let's talk about that. And then um, you also said something earlier, I'd love to dive into a little bit of like, what are the innovations like that are emerging? Like, what are some of these mm -hmm. startups? Because yeah. um, you can go on our website and find a report that we co-authored with Fashion for good out of the Netherlands and uh, HSBC Bank called Unlocking yeah. the $1 trillion opportunity to decarbonize fashion. And this is the model yep. for our $250 million yep. fund and our $2 billion lending capital unlock. So it's all based on this trillion dollar you know opportunity between now and 2050. So there's a lot of opportunity and anybody listening to the podcast who's you know, thinking about technologies for this uh, and whether they're young and in school or whether they're in their graduate programs or whether they're wherever they are, you know, we want to encourage that. So let's, but let's talk about the vertical integration, the supply chain. So I, I'm not an expert on how and why this all happened, but I'll tell you 
that it has been it has uh, been a under this current model as as far as you know I know going going back because you had farms and then you had raw material producers that would turn that whether it was cotton primarily if we go back 150 200 years it wasn't a lot of synthetics clearly until the last you know 7500 years so before that you know we were talking about natural materials wools and and cottons primarily and linen yeah. as well and you know and other other types of natural materials and so the growing of that was the farm and then you would send it to someone who would if it was cotton gen it if it was wool you were scouring it but you would process it to actually be put into yarns you had a broker who made money off the buying and selling of that who was almost like the market you know it was the establishing the market for it and then it was going to you know if you're talking about the united states growing a lot of the raw materials in the South, and we were shipping them up to the North to the textile mills who could then process them into yarn, knit them and weave them and dye them into fabrics. And then you could have another person who could buy fabrics. That was back at a time when you didn't have a lot of big brands out there. And if you were an individual who had the means, you might buy a bolt of fabric and go to a dressmaker and say, if you were a woman or a man, first suit, you know, and say, out of this bolt of fabric, make me these 10 things. And it would trickle all the way down to the scraps for doll clothes, and then the other scraps for rags for the house and etc. You use every bit of that bolt of fabric, right? And so, you know, if we go back to like how it all got established, you had different skill sets across the way, and they were different people that did different things, and they made money and supported their families and their communities and the people that worked for them based on that. And so there, it was never really established established to be a completely vertically integrated supply chain. And then as you keenly pointed out, and of course, I'm talking through the lens of the US, but the same thing happened in Europe. If we're looking through the West where there was so much um, growing wealth and the ability for people to want to have more clothes and buy more clothes. And as we moved out of wardrobes and actually closets in our homes, which is also not we hadn't been doing that for a long time. So the reality is to actually have right, these little right. mini rooms to hold all this stuff. And, you know, when I was a kid, our closets in our house, which was built in the 1940s, were pretty small. Nowadays, you go to a new construction house in the U.S. for certain. And yeah. I'm sure I'm, you know, been in homes in Europe, too. These closets are big for a reason because people are acquiring a lot more stuff. So we've changed how much we're collecting and gathering and all that. And that's really been driven by the West. But now the rest of the world's catching up. So to your point, when it got to um, a certain point where we were making more of it, then there was for the brands behind this, which started off as fashion designers that would become acclaimed uh, for their for their work. And then they would set up shops and ready to wear became a thing. So it wasn't all custom or coterie. It was now, you know, we were mass producing and more ready to wear. And that started in the 19th century, but really, uh, really kind of grew into the 20th century on steroids. And really in the, you know, last 50 years, in the 70s and 80s was when we went to this moving from four seasons a year in the department store to moving to monthly to almost weekly where and I've talked to founders of fashion companies who've said, you know, the retailers, the department stores back in those days were asking us for more product, more often, more colors, more variations on the type. So if I made a jacket with a long sleeve that was being asked to make the same jacket with a cap sleeve, with a princess sleeve, with a three quarter sleeve, make it, you know, um, a bolero jacket, make it the three quarters jacket, you know, and so all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm knocking that thing out in lots of 
iterations in lots of colors rapidly in order to encourage consumers to want to have that article of clothing in several different styles and colors. And that's that's in our lifetime. That's in my lifetime for certain that that has emerged. That was not a thing uh, 60, 70 years ago like it is now. So so those are important things to, to note. And then I think you know, today, you know, price points are pushed pretty low, even in luxury, you know, where there are yeah. larger margins. But uh, we want to keep, if, if we're a company trying to return shareholder value, then having maximizing the uh, the return on our investment means we want you know to have really low margins around this uh, you know w- what it's costing us to produce this cost of goods, and so that means creating this global marketplace of I can put out a bid or a spec, and then I can have ten manufacturers respond and lowball the pricing. And then I'm going to go with the one that might produce the best quality mm-hmm. against the lowest price point and finding that sweet spot of building third party suppliers that I can always leave if their pricing gets too expensive, you know, has been how the economic model has been driven. And I'm not one to demonize people uh, around all this. I'm like, this is just the system we've created. And it's had a lot of benefits for certain stakeholders. And it's had a lot of debt detriment for many others that that, i mean look that's always going to be the struggle because you know if you try to enhance shareholder value right that that means cutting costs in places or trying to get these margins at a specific rate and that's never going to be the margins are never going to be taken away from like shareholders right they don't they don't want any drop in their value right but if we're trying to implement a lot of these changes right specifically like around the clean by design methodology right and sort of innovating on that it's like how can we tell these facilities hey you need to modernize right you need to become this environmentally climate friendly sustainable you know manufacturing hub well that's probably going to cost them money right to do that and now their prices have to go up because the West or whoever has told them, hey, we need to get cleaner, right? We need to get more sustainable. And so, you know, to them, I'm wondering if, you know, from their side of things, do, do they want this? Do they embrace this? How do they look? Because again, they're sort of the quasi boots on the ground, making this whole industry work, right? For for the people benefiting as shareholders or, or, or whoever at the top, right? But the people at the bottom working day to day to actually make this stuff, are they open to, you know, sustainably building these new manufacturers, right, or modernizing their facilities to where they can have some type of stamp of approval, right, or some type of status or, or badge saying that they are this, like, and then their clients leave them because they become a little bit more expensive. Yeah. <laughs> but now they're they're a clean factory, right? And they have all these awards and they're sustainably driven, but like they're not as cheap anymore as sure. somebody in you know another part of the world, right? So like, how does that? That's dynamic, great. Or how great? How will great it work? question. You're, you're, <laughs> you're taking us on the right journey with this conversation. So the next one is let's talk about the supplier, and and I'll also say you know I'm going to talk about what I've learned from them, my perspective based on what I've learned from them, and it's critical yeah. that we bring the supplier and the factory worker and the local residents and those communities into these conversations. As I mentioned a couple minutes ago, even if we're trying to solve for climate 
justice and just energy transition related issues. We can't keep all this in silos and we can't assume that the decision makers uh, are at the table uh, or or the influencers of getting to the right solution for systems change are being heard and then empowering those individuals to become part of the decision makers. So I just want to say that up front because I think we always have to strive to do a better job on this and, um, you know, and our role to build out more of our manufacturer supplier uh, engagement. I mean, obviously we're bringing programs to the benefit Fishery of AI's work is the supplier, but ultimately, then it's also back to the brand too, right? And then hopefully to the world, sure. the consumer, and citizens at large. So the supplier, I think it's, it depends on who you're talking about. And the ones that are really embracing sustainability have effectively built a brand platform on it, and they have become preferred suppliers for those that are rolling out, you know, sustainable denim and sustainable products or cradle cradle certified T-shirts or whatever. And so there's a a small handful of pretty awesome suppliers that have made those investments because they've had some assurance from the brand retailers that they're in partnership with that we're doing this together. It's like, hey, let's create a product that meets these environmental and social goals and let's put it out to the market. We'll market it as the brand retailer and get consumers excited and engaged around the education of it. Uh, will you invest in those improvements or um, costs associated with with making that product. And you mentioned the Clean by Design program, which is a great win-win example because as Linda Greer, who founded the program, calls it, it's the gateway drug to everything else that you would do in the factory environmentally because it has a true return on investment. It's basically, it's an efficiency program for water, uh, energy use, and chemical management that lowers your therefore lowers your carbon emissions. It can uh, lower water usage and also, you know, improve upon the costs of the chemicals that you're using because you're being more efficient in your management of this chem that chemistry related to the water, related to energy. So your bills are going down. So you may take on these improvement costs right up front. It could be mm -hmm. anywhere from mm -hmm. 50 to 150,000 to larger, depending on this volume of your production and how many meters you're installing or pipes you're wrapping to insulate thermal heat or, you know, whatever those things you're taking on, <laughs> yeah. we call it sort of the low-hanging fruit improvement. It's like when we would talk about like replacing light bulbs and buildings and how much money you could save if you would just take the initial cost to replace all those incandescent light bulbs with uh, LEDs. It's going to cost you a bunch up front, but then you're going to make all this money on the back end. And then all of a sudden, real, yeah, real quick, yeah. is there companies or brands maybe subsidizing that, that transformation? Yes into this to help them, you know, to kind of help them curtail the cost early on. Because like you said, it's going to cost a little bit to kind of exactly get your facility up to well, a That's point. exactly what yeah. AII does. So we we collect and pool funds from the brand retailers. Right. We subsidize and, and can even cover the that's whole cost or split it with the supplier or bring a philanthropic partner to the table to match the brand retailer's contribution. And we can upfront those costs. And then, you know, what we're working on now too is bringing other blended capital asset stakeholders to the table. What that means is debt and equity. Like, let's bring some debt financing to the table to say, hey, it may cost you another $150,000, $200,000 to do these improvements. for, And that's relatively low for a factory. But let's be honest, a lot of them don't have that cash on hand. So they're going to have to walk to the bank and go see if they can borrow money. Yep. And yep. they're already borrowing money for their cost of goods. So, you know, when they get an order, they have to actually 
pay for the labor, they have to buy the raw materials, they have to buy the dyes, they have to pay for the energy and water, and then they can invoice uh, the, the day they ship. And so up until that point, they've been financed to front it. Um, and most don't have cash on hand to bankroll the production. So they're going to the bank and getting supply chain finance loans. So what AII is really looking at is, hey, we can subsidize the cost of this. We can potentially also look at bundling it with your existing finance to help de-risk the cost. We can also look at it as a collaborative across the region to look at the number of factories that may enter into some kind of green bond or collaborative portfolio of loans so that if one or two defaults on the loan, it's balanced against the rest of them and we use our philanthropic fund to potentially underwrite first loss for those loans to help stabilize and lower the interest rate. And then just the fact that we're bringing all these brand retailers around the table across a shared supply chain to say, we agree these are the solutions that we want these factories to take on or these facilities to incur and costs and, and you know resources, then we're de-risking those for investment. And that's the attempt that we have. But but great point. So they can make money back on claim by design, but they're going to have to spend some up front. And then within 12 to 18 months on, on those efficiency programs, they recoup all those costs. You could take that literally to the bank and say, hey, will you bankroll us mm. to do these upfront efficiency right. costs yeah. and then we'll pay you back in 12 to 24 months or et cetera uh, as we as our yeah. you know water and energy bills are lowered the bigger so so that's happening and that's something we're building out with this fund and our two billion unlock strategy but the next piece up is then the capital expenditure improvements now if I tell you hey all those boilers that you're burning coal gotta go and we want you to replace them with this new equipment for dry processing or this or we want you to replace three of the boilers yeah. but you can keep <laughs> three but you need to you know improve them and we need to get you off of coal and you know so all this is going to cost money and now we're talking in the millions and so that's actually an opportunity right but for the suppliers as you pointed out under the current model we're putting another tremendous debt burden on top of these suppliers and so to your point it's going to require longer term co-investment and longer term relationship and whether that looks like purchase order agreements um, offtake agreements whether it looks like contracts for production over a course of a number of seasons we have to step into something that stabilizes the relationship between the brand retailer and the supplier in a way that helps the uh, finance flow faster and cheaper and easier without putting such a tremendous debt burden on the supplier. And again, those are the types of um, financial models and programs that AII will be launching and creating with our bank partners and financial institution partners, development mm -hmm. banks, philanthropies, alongside the brand retailers and the, the pooled funds they're putting into the fashion uh, climate fund. And that's what I want to end on, Great. <laughs> is the fashion climate fund, because I'm a big, big proponent of really good allocation of capital, like is the bedrock of, of everything that is our economy, everything that is innovation, everything that is going to move everything forward. I think correct, correctly allocating money to those who are putting in the real work or have great ideas. I mean, it, it is just, it does amazing things. It creates all these jobs and it, it, it creates, you know, stakeholder value, shareholder value. It's just an amazing way um, to unlock talent and resources. So like, I guess, talk about the Fashion Climate Fund. Was that always, was that always going to be a part of AII or, or as you kind of dug in, you're like, hey, this seems to be yeah. 
the next step for our organization is to is to do something like this alongside our day-to-day operations. So just talk about the fund in general and, and what it's going to do and what it, is it doing? What is it allocating towards? That's great. Well, and what I want to do is, so it is a co-creation of a lot of inputs and a lot of influence. And so to answer your question briefly, it was not the original intent to build something like this. Um, and it wasn't necessarily, you know, when I was, was asked to kind of come in and build this organization, uh, it wasn't something that was brought forward. And so um, to say that, you know, I came up with the idea is true, but I also want to give a lot of credit to a lot of influences and a lot of other stakeholders, a lot of conversations I had because I had a theory and and I'll tell you that story, but I needed others to be a part of it and to validate it because I, I feel very much like I'm just the, I'm here for the pass through of the great ideas and to sort of be the little Pied Piper with the pipe. And and it's really the masses around me. You know, this, <laughs> our friend, my friend, Helen Crowley, who, who was at Caring and now Pollination said, you're creating this center of gravity for everyone that's working on climate action in the supply chain of the apparel industry and and that everyone's kind of invited to be a part of it if they meet the certain criteria that you're establishing and and I was like that is a great way to look at it this is a this is an invitation this is a center of gravity everyone is invited to this space but we're driving it from a data driven science based approach right this is how it came together we were already pooling funds we were asking brand retailers to put corporate treasury dollars into AII and then we would look at their supply chain lists and we would co-recruit factories to go through the Clean by Design program. And we knew the Clean by Design was just, quote unquote, the gateway drug, that there was a lot of other things that would need to be brought into those suppliers as improvements if they were going to reach certain sustainable development goals as established by the UN or the Science-Based Targets Initiative. So it became clear that the industry was really focusing on how to reach their SBTs. And and the concept of doing it in this collaborative way to identify fund scale and measure solutions was clear. This has got to be done. But we were working with brand retailers across giving to this pooled concept from $20,000 or you know euros up to 150000 And that was kind of the cap when we got started. That was about as much as they were putting in. And $150,000 as a contribution to an organization that you're partnering with um, is pretty big in the line item of the of the budget for supply chain improvements. It's a pretty big contribution uh, the way it's established now. So even though some of these corporations that we're working with are multi-billion dollars in revenues annually, um, you know, $150,000 is a big is a big cost for, you know, factory improvements through a nonprofit, through an NGO, whether, and so some of them were like, is this our membership? Or it's like, it's not membership because it's direct, directly going back into these facilities if it's, um, you know, if it's uh, done in this pooled way, you know. Um, so I started kind of thinking about donor pooled funds and how philanthropy would bring major stakeholders together to solve for common problems. And I started thinking about the models that I knew about it and doing a little bit of research on donor collaborative funding models or donor pooled funds, because we were using it as not, there was no return on investment to AII or back to the brands for the contributions they would put towards this factory work. It was basically a grant. So they could give it to us out of their corporate treasury. They could also give us philanthropy to match it. And that was great because philanthropy would allow us to develop a lot of the programs and projects. Um, and then the actual supply chain dollars could go into the suppliers. And you kind of kept the two pieces separate so there wasn't self-dealing. And so what we realized was, you know, this needs to be 
a much larger fund. Um, and my 10 years of experience working over at Cradle to Cradle and now at AII was showing me that the funders of philanthropy for this work were pretty small. And even their grants didn't get much larger than a couple hundred thousand dollars. And we, being all the nonprofits, NGOs, membership associations, you know, the solution providers out there, were clamoring and competing and fighting for these limited grant dollars. Yeah. And there were some yeah. awesome players. One of them was CNA Foundation, now the Loudest Foundation, doing some amazing work, grant making in this sector to get programs and things seeded and off the ground. We received grants from them when I was at Cradle to Cradle, and they also helped underwrite the uh, roadmap to net zero report we did with World Resource Institute, and they were amazing. But we need like 20 loudest foundations. We need like 100 loudest foundations. So part of what I recognized was we need a lot more. So I talked to people at these foundations and I said, hey, we're thinking about doing this. Would you be a part of it? Do you think it's a good idea? And got a lot of encouragement. And then I was also funded, um, AII was funded both at Cradle to Cradle, which is why I say I, and then at AII um, by Wendy Schmidt and her team at the uh, 11th Hour Project. And it's part of the Schmidt Family Foundation. Um, and that's, you know, a really interesting perspective of grant making through um, a Silicon Valley kind of approach of being really more experimental and risk taking with things that um, need to be disrupted or get to the next mile. Yeah. And and so in conversations with Wendy and her team really talked through what would be catalytic and what would really disrupt this. And and they were willing to put in the first lead partner uh, matching call to action if I could get three other industry players mm -hmm. to join. And that's when we got H&M Group, the foundation, H&M Foundation, Lululemon to come in first, and then followed by you know our other partners at uh, PVH and Target. And so, and then Schmidt Family Foundation came in as well. And so that's our first initial six partners for it. And so, so that's where, you know, I saw this benefit of creating a grant making engine. And I'll say one more thing on it then to tee up the bigger piece that I think AI is going to be driving is in addition to the 250 million is the 2 billion unlock around this ecosystem of 250. So that's based on our trillion dollar report. We know that the ratio of unlock to debt and equity uh, is like 8x. And so we can take that 250 and turn it into um, more blended capital that we bring in. And so we thought, well, let's not be passive about it. We know that there have been loans to factories based on our clean by design program that are totaling about two hundred million without us ever being part of trying to strategically drive those sustainable financing into those facilities. What if we actually play a deeper role in building partnerships with financial institutions who can be part of the solution for driving more sustainable, better and easier finance into these factories back to that whole let's not put too much debt on the backs of these facilities without some kind of benefit to them longer term. So that's that's what's really become part of that. So it's a lot of listening and learning. It's talking to people at the banks. It's talking to philanthropies and, and listening to the brands and their needs. And then, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the supplier and really trying to understand what the supplier needs uh, in order to accelerate this work. And um, and the venture, you know, a lot of these new technologies and solutions that we're identifying, yeah. 
they need support too. And they need to get in front of brands. They need to be piloted and tested. They need good data to demonstrate that they actually are having a positive environmental impact. And those are grant making dollars. We can help support that work. And that's the role that AI can play too. Amazing. I'll end on, on the future a little bit. And the last question is really just about what does success look like? You know, when you look at maybe three to five years down the line, I guess, what are some of the, the goals or successes you would like to achieve? Uh, great question. So first of all, I'll say with a $2 billion ecosystem of, of blended capital, we're not going to pay for and underwrite all of the improvements and optimizations and investments needed to get to the 2030 target of lowering carbon emissions in the sector by 45% or higher. So that's the goal. What we are going to be is the tip of the spear. We're going to show what good looks like. We're going to identify proven solutions, we're going to underwrite programs that are scaling clean electricity, clean thermal heat. We're going to get things off the ground. We're going to demonstrate what better finance can look like with some new creative financial tool packages that make this go faster. And I think that's what we can look to AII and its partners to be. So this is a call to action to unlock two billion together. This is, you know, uh, oftentimes I think we put it on the backs of the nonprofit. Like, did they succeed in their goal or did they fail? Well, it's it's the goal of all of us that are participating and everyone that AII is asking to be a part of it. Are they willing to step up to the challenge and be a part of it? So I think success looks like that we have identified the two billion and we are rolling it out year over year and that we land on the year 2030 and we've deployed two billion in blended capital into these programs to show what good looks like. And hopefully the industry as a whole is well on their way, if not has reached a 40%. But even if they don't, total decarbonization strategy is to 2040 or 2050, depending on which organization you talk to. So we've got, uh, you know, maybe up to another 27 years to get this work off the ground. So I'd like to see this go bigger and longer than 2 billion unlock. I think we can create something even more massive that creates a system where, uh, where this can flow. I'll also say carbon emissions is not the only target here. We have to be really careful not to get carbon tunnel vision, yep. as our friends at Textile Exchange yep. have pointed out to us. And I, and I love it because, you know, we have land use, we have biodiversity, we have water health, we have waste, we have a lot of issues to tackle for. And so the system we're creating through this climate solutions portfolio and platform approach could put any environmental or social KPI in the middle of the table and say, now let's look at all the solutions that are going to help us lower water usage. Now let's look at all the solutions that are going to have a positive impact on biodiversity. Now let's look at dot, dot, dot. I want the system to be built out in that way. I want it to be a market for finance to find the good projects, whether that's a grant maker, whether that's a, whether that's a, um, equity provider to scale technologies and solutions, capacity building, whether that's a bank to provide the finance. I want this platform of our climate solutions portfolio to be visible in a way that you can find your role and you can dive into this thing. And so that's the center of gravity that's a transparent you know, tool. And then I think we got to go beyond textile apparel. I think we need to look at these industrial parks. What else are they making? What else is mm. being made in the region? Mm -hmm. You know, through some of our partnerships with organizations retailers, I'll say that, you know, make other products, they're keen on seeing us move into glass and ceramics and other hard goods and durables. And, you know, there's a lot we could do with this model. As far as I know, this is the first 
of its kind and trying to create this sort of industry center of gravity with money around it to get us all collective in collective action to scale solutions. Uh, and I'd love to roll it out in other sectors and start really looking at connecting dots because I know that some of the technologies and solutions we're looking for, whether it's thermal heat or next gen materials, maybe piloted in another industry, maybe tested out somewhere else. So we've got to start mm -hmm. cross pollinating across sectors and, uh, and manufacturing as a whole. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I mean, this was super educational for me. Um, and that's what I love about doing this. So thanks for taking the time and, and kind of spilling the beans on a lot of what the industry's kind of up to and doing. And and I think the path forward is is super interesting and promising, right? I mean, there's many things that, that could happen that positive, negative, the, the world changes every freaking day at this point, right? So there's, there's going to be a lot of headwinds, but I think the approach of having everybody involved, right? I think that is the coolest thing about this is that you kind of have they're competing to do things that benefit the entire ecosystem. And that to me is the difference than before. It's like, Hey, we need to compete on margins on price. Like we'll take, a, we want to go to this supplier, but you can't work with any of our competitors. I think there's a lot of that, that hopefully gets weeded out a little bit. And there's an overall recognition of, Hey, we as a, $500 billion industry, probably going to be a trillion dollar industry in the next decade or so. There's enough for all of us here. And if we don't dedicate energy, time, capital into making sure like our environment works well, the regions that we're in works well, and we're not polluting areas where, you know, people then get sick, they can't come to work, their water supply is bad. Like there's a lot of different dynamics that can happen and actually affect these companies revenue and all these different things. So I think if we can make sure that everybody comes together and see that look a positive ecosystem, whether it's environmentally um, for the planet, but also socially for, for people within the lower part of the supply chain, it all benefits all these brands collectively, right? And, and so I think importantly, bringing people together and competing uh, or not competing and coming together to to do some of these foundational things to make the playing field totally uh, a little bit more responsible is yeah. is amazing. Yeah, totally. And and you know, I was at a Aspen Institute's uh, ideas summit the other day, and Tom Steyer said, you know, what well, we got to use capitalism for this because capitalism scales. And I thought that is really true. And so competition can be okay too. And I think there's a role for the pre-competitive and the competitive within this. Mm -hmm. And to mm -hmm. your point, I just want to add, I think it's a tremendous time of innovation and excitement. This is systems change. Change. This is like the, the nerds can come out now because this is really cool, meaty stuff for thinking about solving major problems. I'm, I'm excited about it. I think if we look at it as this is how we come together to future proof our industry, our companies, our individual interests within it. This is about the future proofing phase. And in order to de-risk and future proof, you know, we're going to work together to get that done. And I'll just kind of close on my thought with. Another thing that I heard years ago, and I want to give credit when I hear things to the people that had them, I was at the Sustainable Brands or maybe Lojas conference. Um, I think it was Lojas and Faith Popcorn, the futurist, was speaking about the trend called arcing. And she used the metaphor of the Bible in the Old Testament and said, you know, our flood is coming and you have to decide as a business, are you on the ark or are you not on the ark? And if you're on the ark, then you're part of solving.
solving for humanity's greatest issues and the environment's greatest issues. And your company is part of doing good and purpose toward that future we're creating. If you are moving us in the opposite direction, you don't belong on the ark and you should not make it to the other to the end of the flood. And so right now it's this call to everyone to start retooling and redesigning their businesses to be part of the future good for how we live and work and play and produce uh, and thrive on planet Earth. Awesome. Appreciate you taking, taking the time. Thanks so much. Thank you, Grant. 